Hi, ladies. Welcome, welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I love to study my Bible, and I especially love to study the Bible with like-minded women. So thanks so much for being here. We appreciate all of you here at Women in the Word and love to be here with you. Now, many of you know, you've heard me say before, I have uh, three grown sons. Um, and when they were little boys, um, they were kind of a mess. But they were so... Uh, every now and then they would be kind or they would be charming as only little boys can be with their moms. They would pick me a flower from the weeds out in the front yard and bring it to me like it was the most special thing in the world or they would come in just covered in sticky, dirty uh, mud and grime from outside and immediately want to give me a hug and a kiss and when they would do those things, I thought, oh, gosh, you're a mess, but you're so cute. I can't resist you. I would give them a, a hug, and I would say, you are my favorite four-year-old, or you are my favorite little blonde boy. And one day when I did that to my youngest, who actually thought he was the favorite in the family, and at 40, he still thinks he's the favorite, I think, um, he said to me, Mom, with this real serious face, that's wrong. Moms are not supposed to have favorites from the mouths of babes, right? They always tell you the truth, um, and they often get it before we get it. He was really too young to understand that I was kind of placing this nuance on my favorites expression by saying, you're my favorite four-year-old because I only had one four-year-old at the time. Or you're my favorite blonde boy. I only had one that was a toehead. But he was completely right with the heart of the matter when it comes to partiality and favoritism, as we're going to see today as we look at James chapter 2 together. Partiality or favoritism, as it may say in your Bible translation, never, never walks hand in hand with the life of a faithful believer. So turn with me in James chapter 2, and let's read together. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, one thing I love about James, every time I study the book of James, is he is direct and he is specific here. We know who he's addressing. He's addressing believers. He's addressing believers. The ESV simply calls them brothers. You may have other translations that say brothers and sisters, and that helps us to have this is the whole body of believers he's talking to here. Um, and he also affirms right here in this opening the deity of Christ to his professing, his believing brothers and sisters. He believes that Jesus, his half-brother, is the incarnate Christ, and he affirms that to these believers. Um, he's addressing Jewish Christians here, 
And as he's addressing them here in this part of his letter, I think he's handing out a test of sorts. It's kind of like a pop quiz. Remember those pop quiz days from when you were at school? You'd come in just thinking, oh, yay, this will be an easy day in class, and the teacher starts handing out a test. I have not been in the classroom in years, but I still have dreams that I'm in school in my underwear and there's a test. There's a test and my stomach drops and I can never find the room and I don't have the right book. The thing that worries me is I'm not concerned about being in my underwear. I'm only concerned about the test, how I get to the test. I don't think James's readers are in their underwear here, but James has a test for them in these verses. It's a test of attitude, specifically the attitude of partiality or favoritism in Jesus's church. And he starts his test here with a command. Lots of tests have instructions at the top of the page. And his command instruction is show no partiality. Show no partiality. And that's going to be important for James's audience, these Jewish Christians, because in the Jewish culture they were familiar with there was a hierarchy. There was a hierarchy of priests and Pharisees and teachers of the law. And certainly there was a hierarchy in their culture among between the wealthy Jews and the poor Jews. So his test in this fellowship of Jewish Christians has a purpose. It has an outcome he hopes to produce because it's going to reveal what their hearts truly believe about God as new converts to Christianity. Because how we behave towards other people, it reveals our heart of love and obedience towards God. Look at 1 John 4.20 on your verse sheet. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Obeying James's command here to show no partiality as believers in the church is going to reveal how these Jewish Christians, uh, the love these Jewish Christians have for God and for their Lord Jesus Christ. It's also going to reveal their heart of obedience for God and honoring the Savior. Now, the Greek word that James uses here for partiality has to do with something called respect of persons. Respect of persons. He's not talking about whether we're partial to cake over pie or whether we're partial to the color blue over the color red. The word he uses here for partiality is about people and how we judge the worthiness of people in our own minds. It means judging people based on their outward circumstances and not their intrinsic merits, their intrinsic merits. And James uses it here in this context uh, as preferring as more worthy one who is rich, one who is high-born, one who is powerful, one who has social status. In other words, it's having the eyes and the judgment of the world as you look at the people around you, rather than having the eyes and the judgment of the Savior as he looks at people around him. You know, our Lord Jesus, throughout his life and ministry here on earth, never showed partiality. 
He never showed partiality because he only looked at the heart. He was not judging people based on their externals. We see that with uh, how the leadership of um, the how the leadership of the Jews treated him. They didn't get partiality from Jesus. He was never swayed from outward appearance, power, social status. Look at Matthew twenty two sixteen on your verse sheet. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, "Teacher, we know that you are true." and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus was not swayed by appearances, and everyone understood it. You see that when he tells the story of the widow who gave only a penny in the synagogue. Uh, Jesus was not swayed uh, by her uh, Poverty versus the powerful Pharisee whose donation was large, who was dressed well. Jesus was never swayed by externals. And in fact, Galilean Samaria is where he frequently ministered, and neither Galilee or Samaria is at the top of the social pyramid in Israel. In fact, Jews were not even supposed to be in Samaria. Just like God the Father, there is no partiality with Jesus. And James gives us an example here in these first four verses that we can probably all relate to in some sort of circumstances. We don't know whether this example that he gives here of these two men is an actual example that he witnessed or if it's a hypothetical one. I read Um, a lot about this, and some people thought he had witnessed this, and some theologians thought it was hypothetical. Um, His example here is of these two men entering the church. One is obviously wealthy. He's got a lot of uh, expensive jewelry on. He's dressed in the finest of clothing. Um, That's his outward appearance, is I have a lot of money. Um, The other man is dressed in clothing that is worn, shabby, patched. It's probably dirty because he's been out working all day, either in the streets or in the field. Um, One screams wealthy from their outward appearance. The other one screams poor from their outward appearance. But both have presumably walked into this assembly of believers for the same reason. They've come for the same reason, to meet Jesus, to get to know Jesus better, to fellowship with him, to worship Jesus as the Savior. Um, Now, another thing we don't know is if these James intends for these two men to be believers that are trying to find a place to worship, or if these are seekers. They've heard about Jesus. What is all this stir among Jewish people that are converting to worshiping Jesus? So they could be new believers or they could be seekers. Um, And James' example here, he has the greeters, something we would call ushers or maybe deacons at Christ Chapel. They make a fuss over the wealthy man, don't they? They give him a front row seat. It probably has a cushion. It's probably very prominent where they can see whoever's going to teach that morning. He also gets a footstool because that was showed his importance if he could prop his feet up off the dirty floor. Now, the man in the worn, shabby, grubby, patched clothing, he simply told, sit on the floor. Just sit on the floor. Or maybe the back of the room. 
there's, there might be room in the back of the room. One theologian I read called this the case of the nearsighted usher because all he could see was the bling on the rich man. That's all he noticed was the bling on the rich man. And these ushers are both actually given a test the minute these two men walk into this worship service. Um, Their test is, would they be like the world, bowing down to wealth and position in hopes of getting something, either for themselves personally or maybe for the church, more money for the church's coffers, or maybe he'll add a new building or two because we've really grown and we're bursting at the seams here. Um, They do that even though they're followers of Jesus. The other question is, uh, the first question is, do they treat them like the world? The second test question is, would their attitude reflect their faith? And um, as followers of Jesus, would they possibly be kind to these two men? Would they be blind to the externals, the fancy clothes or the poor clothes, the jewelry or the grime and the grub of being a day laborer? James tells us that these two ushers, these believers, failed the test. They made a zero on this test. They made two significant mistakes here. The first one is they made judgments about people. They had no idea anything about these people's lives except the externals. They made judgments about the externals, probably in hopes that the church would benefit in some way from the wealthy man. That's a wrong answer on God's test of attitude. The second wrong answer is even though they judged the wealthy man to be worthy of preferential treatment, they still could have extended grace to the poor man, couldn't they? They still could have answered the second test question, right? Giving grace to the poor man, but they didn't. They waved him off, set him down on the floor, ignored him. So if God is grading the test papers of these ushers, he's writing double-minded hypocrite in big red letters across the top of their test. Here they are, in his example, in the church, professing faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, yet treating others as the world treats them. In James's example, their partiality has revealed the double-mindedness of the, their faith. They are sitting in church, but acting like the world, acting like the world. And sadly, their sin of partiality um, calls James to describe them as judges with evil thoughts. What a thing to think we could be sitting in church judging people as the world judges, and we would be seen as judges with evil thoughts. You know, God is grieved when his people, his church, look and act more like the world than like Jesus. Look at, let's keep reading. Look at verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
So James wants to continue to get his readers' uh, attention here. And uh, he, he uses the word listen because his words are important. And whenever I see listen in the scriptures, I always think of it as a megaphone. It's what I call a megaphone word in the scriptures. And he uses his megaphone here to remind us of the truth of God's grace, which is evidenced every day by God's heart for the poor, the sinful world marginalizes those who have little, doesn't it? Little money, little power, little uh, voice to change their circumstances. Those who have little are marginalized in the world, but God has done just the opposite. In God's economy, he never marginalizes the poor. He never marginalizes those who have little Instead, he chooses by his grace, his unmerited favor, those who are told to sit on the floor, those who are sent to the back of the room, those who have little esteem by anyone around them. Um, Wherever they go in this world, God has chosen them. He has chosen to include those who have little in the world in his plan of salvation. Um, They are going to be rich in faith, and in the next world, they are going to be heirs to his kingdom. They are going to have mansions. They are going to have everything in the next world in God's kingdom that they don't have in this world. In his plan of salvation, God has not overlooked them simply because they are poor. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. No, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The partiality of the world that James is pointing out here to his readers, even in the church, choosing people both based on worldly externals of money and power and fame is rejected by God in his plan of salvation. We do not see uh, the externals of the world in God's plan of salvation. He never calls people to salvation based on human wisdom uh, or human values. God calls those to salvation whose hearts are open to him, who are willing to be dependent on them, who are willing to place their faith on him rather than in the world. Because when God calls those who are nothing, those who are seated on the floor, those who are sent to the back of the room for salvation, to trust in Jesus, he receives all the credit. He receives all the glory. Those seated on the floor are sent to the back of the room, never say, well, I was chosen because of who I am. I am powerful and rich and beautiful. Certainly God would want me in his kingdom. And James gets that because James, just like his half-brother Jesus, is the son of a poor carpenter, isn't he? And he is still poor. And yet he knows Jesus died for him, not because of anything that he was in the world, but because he was willing to place his faith and his dependence 
on Jesus. So we can understand why James is frustrated here with these Jewish Christians who are at risk of conducting church like the world lives. When he says here in these verses that they have dishonored the poor man, the word he uses means shamed. It means they shamed him. It also means insulted. It was an insult to that man to seat him on the floor, send him to the back of the room. And yet, while shaming and and insulting one man, what did they do to the other man? They fawned over him. They honored him. And these are the same wealthy people that often oppress them and drag them into court. So James goes on to use four questions here to point out their foolishness in bringing the world's standards into the church. His four questions are, um, the first one is, he says to them, hasn't God chosen the poor to bless and honor in his kingdom? And the answer is yes. They know that answer, it is yes. The second question is, isn't it the rich? the rich which you're so quick to honor here in the church, isn't it? Them who mistreat you in the world? The answer is yes. The next question is, aren't they the ones that are dragging you into court unjustly? The answer is yes. And don't they say terrible things about the Savior that died for you? The answer is yes. I think he implies a couple of more questions here that he doesn't ask. I think he implies the question, where is your loyalty to Jesus? Why are you loyal to the things of the world that have hurt and mistreat you and you still act like they're valuable right here in the presence of Jesus? Why are you not showing favor to Jesus? He's the one that has given his life for your life and those he loves. These questions that he answers them here, the ones that are spoken, and I think the ones that are unspoken, and they're obvious answers. James uses them because he wants to push his readers to think through their double-mindedness. Why, if the wealthy in the world cause you trouble, are you so quick to jump in and honor anyone who's wealthy He wants them to recognize that God ignores riches in his plan of salvation. God ignores social status in his plan of salvation. God ignores political power in his plan of salvation. And so should God's people. So should God's people. Jesus came and gave his life to break down those walls of partiality that the world has used for centuries to divide people and to have power over them. James's words here on the attitude of partiality are a reminder that the church should never build those walls back. We should never, as believers, build the walls back that Jesus came to destroy. It's pretty convicting, isn't it? Look at verse 8 with me. And if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Jesus, uh, James switches gears here from attitudes to actions. 
Um, in the example he gave earlier, he revealed the, uh, that the Jewish Christians are judging people with the attitude of partiality, just like the world. And now he, he encourages them here. There's an answer. There's a way to overcome your attitude of partiality. You can overcome that attitude of partiality that is in the world with the action of love. And that's great wisdom to overcome that attitude with an action. In fact, it actually is a well-known principle of human behavioral psychology. If you've studied psychology much, you know that our feelings follow our actions. Our attitudes can be changed by our actions. And um, I found it to be true in my life. I bet you have too, have discovered ways that your actions actually change your attitudes. Um, and, and I'll give you just one simple example from my life. Um, I am not an avid exerciser. You probably couldn't tell just by looking at me, but uh, yeah, I am not that uh, marathon runner. Um, I, I, uh, I really hate to exercise. And my husband would say, tell you that I hate to sweat whenever he and I are doing something together. I'm like, I'm sweating. I'm sweating, aren't we? Yes, I hate this. Um, And he, of course, loves to sweat. But you know what? When I exercise regularly because it is good for my health, not because I like it, not because I feel like it, but if I do it regularly, And I find myself kind of looking forward to it. I think, oh, yeah, I've got time now. I'll put on my walking shoes and do a couple of miles after dinner. I find myself changing the way I view exercise. My attitude changes because of an action. And James is hoping the same thing here, that he can change the attitude of partiality that he sees in the Jewish Christians by encouraging to change their action. And he reaches back into the Old Testament to a scripture they would be familiar with as Jewish Christians. Look at Leviticus 19, 18 on your verse sheet. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sins of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the action he's just given them here in these verses. They know it from their Jewish background. It's also an action that Jesus affirms during his time on earth. Look at Matthew 22. And he said to him, this is Jesus talking, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet, loving others as we love ourselves, treating others the same way we want to be treated is the action that James tells his readers that they should be engaging in. It's the action of treating every single person that we encounter the same way we treat ourselves. If these Jewish Christians had actually taken that to heart when in James's example, what would they have done? They would have seated these two men in their favorite seat. They, he would have taken both the rich man and the poor man to exactly the spot they like in the worship service. Um, probably the most comfortable location, certainly with a footstool because it would have given them 
uh, a sense of importance, and it would have kept their feet off the dirt on the floor. And you know, if we think about ourselves on a Sunday morning, we all have that favorite spot, don't we? Some of us like to sit on the aisle, some in the middle, some down front, some in the back. Uh, Some sit close to people, some sit far apart. Um, We know how to treat ourselves, and we really don't want anybody else to get there first and get our spot. But if we were following James's action plan, what do we do every Sunday morning? What should we do? We see a visitor come in, we should take them to our spot. That's the spot we know is the best one in the church because that's where we want to be. That is love in action, treating everyone, no matter who they are or what they look like, the way we treat ourselves. And that's the key to overcoming the sin of partiality. James calls this love in action the royal law here for a couple of reasons. First, it is a sovereign law, which combined with the first command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul that we just read in Matthew. If you put those commands together to love God and treat others as you want to be treated, that actually summarizes the entirety of God's law and his prophets. It's all right there if you do those two things. The other reason this is the royal law is it's the supreme law. It's binding because it was decreed by the king of kings and considered the king of laws. James understands that this royal law, this action of loving others as we love ourselves, is the answer is the answer. Our world talks a lot today about overcoming uh, prejudice, about social justice issues. This is the answer. If we would love everyone around us and treat them the way we want to be treated, it is the answer to prejudicial partiality. It's the ultimate law of relationships. So this fellowship of Jewish Christians has got another test to take. The first test was on attitudes. The second test is on action. The first question is, can they take action and embrace this royal law from the king of kings, loving and treating everyone as they want to be treated with the blind impartiality of Jesus? Or here's the second question. Will they commit the sin of partiality, breaking the king's law, for the love of others. And it's a clear choice that James gives them here in these verses. Partiality violates God's specific commands and the royal law that is found in his word. That royal law is stated again in Matthew 7, 12. Look at that on your verse sheet. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. In God's economy, Everyone is worthy of being treated the same way we want to be treated. My four-year-old was right, wasn't he? Favoritism, partiality is wrong. It is a sin. But let's look at James's response real quick to those who think playing favorites isn't really that big of a deal, is it? Look at verse 10 with me. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So 
James anticipates here that some of his readers are not going to think partiality on their part is a big deal. Um, And he points out the fault in that belief here. Uh, God's laws are not an online menu. We don't get to pull it up and just pick out two or three. Hey, I like that one, and I like that one, and I can do this one. Um, James is also saying that we don't get to pick and choose, and he's also saying that if you break one law, you've broken every law. That's not what he's really talking about here. His explanation is, is that the murderer and the adulterer are both lawbreakers. So if you walk into a prison um, and see all the prisoners, all those prisoners have broken different laws, but they're all in prison. They're all lawbreakers. And Jason, James's point here is that the sin of partiality makes you as much of a lawbreaker as a murderer in God's eyes. Every sin may not have the same serious consequences in the world, but every sin is a violation of God's law and his will. And it's pretty eye-opening for those of us, myself included, who like to have that kind of sliding scale of sin, maybe on a a scale of one to 10, and you know what the ones are, and eh, you know, hey, a one, God gets it. God understands. I parked in a uh, no parking zone, confession time, downtown um, a few days ago waiting for my husband. And I thought to myself, well, there's not a policeman around and I'm really not hurting anyone and we're in a hurry and he's just going to be, I mean, I gave myself every excuse for breaking the law. We do that with other sin as well. We say, you know, I I kind of do a one or a two every now and then. Um, It's not really that bad, but I never do a 10. I never do a 10. And so I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm a pretty good Christian. I don't have any 10. James reminds his readers and all of us that a lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. The sin of partiality may not make you a murderer, but it does make you a lawbreaker. It makes me a lawbreaker. Let's read the last two verses. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, the law of liberty is the law of Jesus. It's genuine freedom that we have from sin in our lives through the sin sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it enables us to obey. Because of his sacrificial death, our sins are forgiven. And we have that Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit that teaches our hearts how to become more like Christ every day. That's what we're all doing here is having the Holy Spirit teach our hearts about the sin of partiality. We are free from sin's bondage and we are enabled to obey him fully every day. That's the law of liberty. Look at Romans six eighteen. And having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. But you know what it means if we're slaves to righteousness? It means that we still have a responsibility to act and to speak the way Jesus would have us speak in righteousness. Uh, We're going to be held accountable for our words and our actions when we stand before Jesus, our liberator. 
So how we speak and how we act towards others is going to matter. And passing that final exam of partiality happens when we can stand before Jesus and honestly say, we saw others, Lord, the way you see them. And we treated others, Lord, the way you wanted us to treat them, the way we wanted to be treated ourselves. And as believers, James, as readers, have to understand, even though there is going to be a day that we stand before Jesus and uh, are held accountable and our rewards are given to us, we're not going to lose our salvation. We're not going to lose our salvation. But there is a day we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ And God will judge each of us according to how we've judged others. That's how he's going to base our rewards in heaven. On how we've treated others is going to be part of that. He will not, and this was interesting, I read a lot on this. He's not going to treat us with partiality when we stand before him, is he? He's going to treat us, uh, judge us, base our rewards on the same mercy we have given others. If we have been unmerciful, he is going to judge us unmercifully. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or evil. So those who have been unmerciful will be judged impartially with God's unmerciful uh, judgment as well. But those who have been merciful in dealing with others can rejoice in God's mercy. Look at Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's his last statement here, and I love that because what it means is that the action of loving others wins over partiality and favoritism in our lives and in the church. That action of love wins over partiality, just like mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to steal a phrase here as we finish up together from one of our teachers, Vanita, who taught last week. And when she was studying this, one day she said, oh my gosh, studying James is like a gut punch because everything you read, you think, oh, Oh, that's, oh gosh, that's me. Um, James's words about the sin of partiality as I've studied it have been a gut punch, have been a gut punch because in today's culture, what we're surrounded in, what we're immersed in um, is a, a world that makes people about their money, about their social status, about their skin color, about their beauty, but people are so much more than that, aren't they? There's so much more than their money, their skin color, their social status. You know, it's interesting to me that social media actually thrives on something they called influencers, trying to influence us to judge others on their beauty, their appearance, um, what they do for a living. They want to influence us to be partial. And our world also, uh, this is a great example too, has been fascinated by the royal family recently, haven't they? Their drama in the last few weeks. And, you know, the queen, I believe, was a woman of faith and character. But we have no reason to be partial to the royal family based on their titles or their money or their beauty or their bloodline. So 
as we take in this gut punch from James about the sin of partiality, what do we need to learn from it? What do we have to take away from it? How do we pass the test of partiality? I think there are three pretty simple things we can do that will really help us get an A on that final exam. And the first one is I think we have to cultivate blindness in the world around us to anything that tempts us to show partiality to others. This may be different from other for everyone. You may have a tendency to show partiality to beautiful people or socially prominent people or wealth, whatever it is, you have to begin today to cultivate blindness to it. Do not look at people based on their externals. Now, I don't mean ignore people's accomplishments, but never use those accomplishments as a reason to give them favor. Um, I had my decades many decades past high school reunion this past summer. Um, and, and let me say to all you great young gals in the room, it is so freeing to be older. It is so freeing to be older because in that gathering of all those people that I went to high school with, uh, in our old age, we had nobody cared any longer who was the cheerleader, who was the beauty queen, who was the quarterback, who was the valedictorian. In our old age, we had fortunately become blind to all those things. We were simply a group that was happy to have survived COVID. That was it. We were all there happy because many did not. Um, So cultivate blindness every day to the meaningless things of the world that teach us to separate, isolate, marginalize, and judge. The next thing we can do is I think... And and I'm speaking to myself. We have to greet everyone, whether here at Women in the Word or in church on Sundays, the same way Jesus would greet them. As I was studying this, I was so um, meditated on this example of the poor man and the rich man um, and how they were offered different places, one honored, one shamed. I was taken by the fact, and I said it earlier, they came for the same reason. They came for Jesus. They came to get to know him and to worship him. Um, and, I, and Jesus met them there. He greeted them with warmth and acceptance and love. I don't often think of Jesus as angry. That's not a picture that I have in my mind. But I do think when he saw that man in the dirty patched clothing seated on the floor, pushed to the back of the room, I do think he was angry and sad and grieved. We don't want to do that to our Savior, do we? So every time we're together as believers, whether for Bible study, let's greet everyone the way Jesus would, not looking at what they're wearing or who they are, but simply loving them with his blind impartiality. And finally, we have to change any um, attitude of partiality that we have with our action of love. And I would love to tell you, I never struggle with these kind of judgments, um, but that would be a lie. I am a sinner saved by grace, but I know that I can change that. I can change by choosing to love others that don't look like me, that don't dress like me, that don't live like me. And the more I do that, the more I actively seek to love others and treat them the way I want to be treated, the more my action of love is going to triumph 
over my attitude of partiality, and I am going to pass that test of partiality. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails. Love never fails. Pray with me, ladies. Father, we are all sinners saved by grace, and I pray that you would just encourage us every single day to overcome our attitudes that match up with the world and that we would change those attitudes to an action of loving others. I thank you that you hear our prayers, you answer our prayers. I thank you for these great words from James that um, encourage us and convict us. Let us be women that live by the truth of your word and love everyone and treat everyone the way we want to be loved and treated. And I pray this in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.